Welcome back to our Asian American Brainstorm podcast. Let's talk about finances. If you're like us, hearing any financial or business terms can often leave you confused or overwhelmed. In some cases, maybe your parents didn't talk about money at all, or the topic was considered taboo. Adiba, I'm curious, how was Monday handled in your house? So for me, I'll admit, when I got my job and big retirement book came in the mail, I was overwhelmed. I was like, what? What are the different plans? Where do I go from? I think because my parents, like they immigrated here, they're still kind of like learning and I'm learning as they go. And I know for a lot of people, that's the case. Some people even have it more difficult where they kind of handle their parents' finances because they have to translate things and all. Interesting because I feel like it generally wasn't talked about much. It was kind of like, I think they didn't want the kids worrying about it, you know, so they didn't want to talk about money around us at all. But then on the other hand, my dad is super into finances. And so as I got older, he started talking with me about finance concepts and he would go on very long tangents (laughs) talking about the most obscure finance concepts. And for the longest time, I couldn't help but tune out all of his like talks about it. Personal finance is laden with unknown terms. I do think it's important for everyone, especially AAPI people in this case, to understand the basic concepts and strategies of personal finance. You've probably heard the saying money is power before. Now, personally, whenever I hear this phrase, I picture like a man in a business suit, his face covered in shadows, reaching out his greedy hands to oppress other people. (laughs) I don't know if that's the way that you (laughs) kind of think of that phrase. I also kind of think of it as like money is power, like in a negative way, like how like the government, just countries that are really wealthy kind of taking over. But I'm sure it's much more than that. Yeah, I recently have realized that the saying doesn't always have to be interpreted negatively. I think money can actually be a tool and it can be used to help you keep shelter, safety and security. It can let you have experiences that you'll remember for a lifetime, like traveling to a different country or visiting your family. And it can even enable you, if you save enough of it, to have the freedom of having work be optional, aka retirement. So this is, you know, one of the many reasons personal finance is important. Although the personal finance realm can be littered with all this technical jargon, the general concepts are actually pretty easy to grasp. And with some simple strategy, you can go a long way in setting up a more comfortable future for yourself, whether that's having a safety net in case you lose your job or bigger goals like potentially retiring early. So I was wondering, how about AAPI people as a whole? I know I hear things about like model minority myth and things that don't seem super accurate. I'm curious, how are we actually doing with our personal finances? So as a whole, AAPI people are doing quite well. The average annual household income is about 20K more than the U.S. average. We're at like 80 something and the U.S. average is 60 something. The net worth for Asian Americans as a whole is also higher than average as well. We tend to carry less debt. And we're also planning on retiring slightly ahead of national average by about a year and a half earlier than normal. However, along with all of that, AAPI people have the most diverse spread of income levels. And because AAPI is such a broad group of people, there are people that are on the really high end of the spectrum, and there are other people who, you know, are barely getting by. Just as an example, Indian Americans have one of the highest kind of average household incomes at around 119K per year. And then Burmese Americans, they only average about 44K a year. That's a huge range. And it creates an environment where it seems like 
AAPI people are doing fine on the surface, but when you look closer, there are many subsects of us that are struggling with living close to the poverty line. I feel like that part is overlooked a lot. Definitely. Another interesting aspect about AAPI members is that there are more AAPI members that are caregivers in other ethnic groups. About a third of us are supporting our family financially in some form, whether that's you know, you have a multi-generational household and you're taking care of your parents, or that's sending money back home overseas. This one-third number is over 10% more than the national average, which is at about 20%. I think it's a great thing that in AAPA culture, we take care of our parents and we make sure that they're supported. I also think that it is, you know, for better or worse, a factor in the ability to build individual wealth. I agree too. Like, it's great that they're supporting, but it's also a huge pressure. And sometimes, like you said, individual finances is always not like a priority. Right. Another thing about AIPA members is that they tend to not like consulting with financial professionals. I think that this could be a combination of potentially trust issues. You know, naturally, if you're new to some other country, it's going to be hard for you to just, you know, you're just trying to figure out how things work, right? Like what is a credit card and how does credit work? You're not going to be like, oh, how can I optimize this and this and this so I can reach retirement at the earliest age or something, right? So that was like one thing that I thought about. The stats that I pulled don't have like, oh, this was the cause. So this is all just kind of theory. That's one of the things that came to mind as a potential idea. I was curious if your family or you like have been to a financial professional before. It's funny how you mentioned about like trust issues, because I feel like a lot of time immigrant parents like have that because I think back in our countries, like there are people who kind of like just to make money, they give advice. It's not always like something that's needed. So they have that in the back of their mind. I feel like it's less here. I'm not saying that everybody's like super innocent and gives the best advice, but for the most part, usually like accountant professionals are, are good at that. My parents have been going to an accountant because they never did like their taxes online because they pretty much didn't understand like what was the best way to maximize taxes and things like that. And then future retirement. And I didn't go until the first year I started earning. So I think that was at 21 or 22 years old. Our tax account was super helpful, kind of gave the best advice. But I think my parents don't follow everything that he says. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you got to I guess you got to make the best decision for yourself. Ultimately, it's interesting. My dad. I don't think he's been to a financial professional in many years, but he also is just a personal finance nerd of sorts. I was going to say he is kind of a professional. Honestly, for I haven't seen a financial professional myself yet. It's all just been, I'm confused about this. Let me call my dad and ask. I know that my dad said that when he was younger, he had a meeting with a financial professional because he wanted to reach, basically, he wanted the ability to potentially retire at age 55. And so he went to a financial planner and they charted out like a bunch of ways in which to optimize his savings. And so, I mean, I think it was within a couple years of that number that he did hit kind of like a number in which he could retire if he wanted to. I love that. I think I'm going to do exactly that. I'm going to go up to a financial advisor and be like, listen, I want to retire in my 50s. How do I do that? Which is pretty awesome. To be clear, my dad is white. My mom is the one that's Asian. And so I don't really know too much about what my mom did in terms of visiting financial planners. I know that she did for at least a a number of things. But of course, she had my dad. So he was kind of like the finance expert, which was nice. 
going back to the general AAPI experience, one thing that is very interesting, this is not from a stat that I pulled, this is just from my experience, but a lot of us, I think, as children of first-generation immigrants, it is a typical experience for us, at least for me, where both of my parents, but especially my mom, my mom worked at a 7-Eleven as an assistant manager basically her whole career, and for her, she wanted me to do better than she did. And so it was very much a lot of pushing me to do well in school and pushing me to have a well-rounded extracurricular activity when I was younger with the emphasis on going to a good college, getting an education and getting a high paying job. And so for better or worse, I have a degree in engineering now and I am an engineer. And I mean, don't get me wrong, I like being an engineer. However, it is an interesting thing to consider if I had had not had that particular pressure, you know, it was just like, oh, you can do whatever you wanted to. And there wasn't this concern of money. Like, what would I have done if I had just gone into college like that rather than this mindset of I have to be earning a decent amount of money every year? I think about that sometimes. I'm like, I think I picked tech because it was my passion. But did I also pick it because it was guaranteed a high paying job? And that's also emphasized in my family. And I think a lot of parents is just they want you to do better. And so they want to guarantee you. And that's why there's a lot of pressure for people to do STEM, even though there's so many fields where you can make money. It doesn't have to be a STEM major. Right. Absolutely. It's crazy because I think about my experiences and I'm like, well, there was a lot of, relatively speaking, right? There was pressure on me to, again, do better, do better than my mom to, to be a high earner. But on the other hand, I, I have very little pressure compared to some other people in the API community. I was listening to a video in order to get some stats that I brought to you today, and there was a profile of this girl. She was in college finishing up her degree, and she was working like three jobs. Basically, what happened was she's Hmong American, so she's one of these subsects that tends to be lower earners, relatively speaking. Her dad and her mom had immigrated. She was basically in a kind of a single mom situation for the later years of her life. And the mom recently had to stop working due to a disability. And so she was out here basically being the breadwinner and earning a college degree all at the same time. And, you know, with this pressure to be a high earner. And that's that's a lot. You know, I'm very fortunate in that respect that I had the finance expert dad and a kind of good setup to go into college and not be super stressed about how am I going to earn money, not just for me, but for the family. Same here. Like, I'm sure there's a good amount of people that didn't follow their passion because they pretty much needed money and food on the table right away. You know, the question is, how can we actually learn from this and bring AAPI wealth higher for all subgroups? I think with a lot of people, when they first come here, again, they don't quite know how everything works here in terms of finances. And so I think knowing the basics goes a long way to helping people in their journey to building up a good safety net and just generally wealth building. Are there any specific, I would say, if you had to like kind of sum up the main points of how to kind of secure your future, what would you say those are? So I would say that kind of the main things are there's four steps. So there's the emergency fund or safety net, 401k, the IRA, and a brokerage account. And I will kind of briefly summarize those. The emergency fund or safety net is basically the first thing you wanna do when you start earning money 
It's basically setting aside, they also may call it like a rainy day fund, setting aside money in case you lose your job or something else horrible happens and you have to not earn income for a while. Your emergency fund will help supplement you in that interim and make sure that you don't end up in a situation where you have to like take out loans and go in debt. So that's kind of the first main step. Second and third, 401k and IRA, those are both forms of retirement savings accounts. So if you are in a W-2 job, you probably, W-2 is a type of tax form. If you're in that kind of job, you probably have a 401k of some sort. And so one of the things you can do is you can use that. Even if you don't have, you don't work for a company that has a 401k, as long as you earned income for the year, you can open up an IRA. And so what those two things are, is they're basically accounts that let you grow your wealth in an efficient manner. What you do is that if you're at a company that has a 401k, you sign up for their plan. They usually have what's called a company match of some sort. So if your company matches you in a certain percentage, you at least want to put that much in, if not more. And for an IRA, you can just open that at will. You can deposit up to, it's about $6,000 per year into that account. Uh, As soon as you start to earn income, whatever age you are. So with both of these, you either open an IRA or you sign up for your company's 401k, you put money into them, right? For 401ks, it's a percentage and it gets taken out of your paycheck automatically. So the money that hits you, the 401k money is already out of there. It's already in the account. The IRA, you know, you have to say, all right, the money that I got from my paycheck, I'm going to contribute some of that to the IRA. Now, once the money gets into those accounts, you actually have to invest it. And so that means that you have to pick the particular fund that you want to go into and have that money grow through with the stock market as the years move on. And so the beauty of this is that when you invest your money in these accounts is that it's adjusted for inflation. So when your money sits in a savings account, as you know, we had an inflation percentage of like 8% this year, which is pretty crazy. And that means that if you would just have your money sitting in a savings account, it's lost 8% of its value. But if you put it in there and it gets invested in the stock market, it's going to somewhat account for that inflation rise. And as, it, as the stock market goes up, which if you look at it over the timescale of multiple decades, the stock market always goes up. And you know we have like 100 years worth of data on that. Contribute, put your money in, leave it there. You're not supposed to touch either of those accounts until you're 59 and a half or older. But once you hit that age, for us, we're in our 20s. That's like 40 years. So that money is going to be way bigger than it was when you first started contributing, right? And it's going to grow with a thing called compounding interest. Earlier you start, the more it'll have the chance to grow. You can access that money at, when you retire, 59 and a half, or later. You can use that for whatever you need it for. So that's kind of the idea behind a 401k and an IRA. That kind of makes sense. Absolutely. I like didn't even know the difference between IRA and 401k. Yeah. So I mean, the real difference is just that IRA, it's an individual retirement account. So anybody with earned income can do it. And some places, you know, a lot of lower wage service oriented jobs don't have 401ks. Like if you work at a server at a restaurant, you probably won't have a 401k. So that's the situation where you'd be like, I need to open up an IRA. 
401ks are, again, the company-sponsored plan. So it's going to be a little bit, you have less options, but you get the employer match, which means that they're basically giving you amount of money for as much as you put in, which is more money that can go to your retirement savings. So those are kind of the two main things for retirement. And then the last step is the brokerage account. So the brokerage account is basically, if you have money left over after you've already put it into your emergency fund and your 401k and your IRA, the brokerage account is for all of that leftover money that you don't need to spend on your just the monthly things you need to, to get. And what you can do with that, you can save that money at any time and you can withdraw it at any time. But the goal with that is also to keep it in for at least 10 years or more. So that way you can kind of take advantage of the stock market growth. For brokerage accounts, you could basically go to any kind of brokerage. Now, personally, you want to look for a low fee brokerage. So I use Vanguard, but you could also go to Charles Schwab or Fidelity. Those are all pretty good brands. Anything with not a huge amount of fees. Now, when I say a huge amount of fees, I'm talking like two or three percent. A low fee would be considered like less than one percent. With your brokerage account, you basically want to try to go for index funds or ETFs. Both of those, what they do is that they bundle a bunch of different companies together for stocks. And so instead of buying one individual company stock, the company could crash tomorrow, you could lose all your money, right? But if you do this index fund scenario, instead you're basically investing a tiny portion into a bunch of different companies. And you know, if you pick something like the S&P 500, you have it spread across 500 of the top companies in the US. And so as this grows over the years, say one company goes down tomorrow, it's not going to affect your score that much, like your overall stock, because it's only like 1% of the total portfolio you have for your index fund. Does that kind of make sense? So make sure it's like spread out. Yes, exactly. So the, the goal with brokerage accounts and, and investing in things like index funds and ETFs is that you want to keep everything diversified. That's the safest way to grow. If you diversify, it's kind of like you're almost just investing in the stock market in total. And again, if you look at the evidence over the past 100 years, even from like 10-year, 20-year marks, you can see that the stock market grows up. The goal is to put it in there, keep it for at least 10 years, if not more than 10 years, and then pull it out later. It'll have grown some, it'll have adjusted for inflation rather than keeping it in a savings account and just having the value of your money decrease. This is super helpful. Now I know that investing is not just for rich people. Yeah, I mean, that's like the, the thing that I think a lot of people think. So like investing, that's just for rich people. But no, I think it's very helpful for people to actually start investing. Again, it can be really simple. You can just have it in like, two or three different index funds and you're done. And you just set it and you forget it and you come back to it a decade, two decades, three decades later and it's like grown. One last thing I wanted to touch on was that if you were, if you're in debt in some form, basically you kind of want to have a certain philosophy about how to pay that off. Uh, Most people just think like, oh, I just got to pay off the debt. And then once the debt is paid off, I can do whatever this extra step is, right? The investing, even though that seems very intuitive you actually want to do kind of a half and half approach. So you want to pay off the debt, but you also want to be able to invest a little, ideally. And the reason for that is that over time, the value of your money is you can take advantage of the compounding interest, but you can also pay off your debt. And so 
You can take advantage of the stock market growth, but you can also pay off your debt. So there's a couple other ways as you kind of go along in life to potentially save and like build wealth. And I think a lot of people, I don't know, at least my mom was very frugal. She definitely did not fall into this camp. My dad, on the other hand, (laughs) definitely has, he has enough money, so he's fine. It's just something to be aware of if it'll impact you. The thing I'm talking about is lifestyle inflation. So what this means is, say you go to college and you worked really hard and you kind of lived a little thrifty when you're in college, but then you get this this nice job and now you're getting a fair amount of money and you're like, wow, I have like a fair amount of money now for the first time ever. So lifestyle inflation is when you get that money that you immediately go and you like buy a super nice car, you buy this like thousand dollar handbag or something, you know? A combination of like, oh, now I have money so I can buy this super nice thing, or now I have money and everybody else has money and everybody else has these really nice cars. I need to buy a really nice car to keep up with them, right? So you kind of want to avoid that urge and you want to ask yourself, there's nothing wrong with buying a nice car if you've been dreaming about a nice car all your life, that is your ultimate goal, but you also want to consider just how it's going to impact you. You want to ask yourself before you make a purchase, like a really big purchase, do I really need this? Is this something that's going to bring joy to my life? Or is it just going to get me in other trouble? Like maybe I'll be really tight on groceries this month. And I think everybody's going to find their own balance. And then the last thing is that, you know, all of this is kind of general and for educational purposes only. You should ideally see a financial planner, specifically a fiduciary. And what that means is that a fiduciary is somebody who isn't working on a commission. They have a flat fee to see you. This means that their interests are not about, oh, I have to sell this thing so I can get a good commission. It's, oh, we want to make sure that you're treated well in this experience. And so if you're going to see a financial planner, see a fiduciary, Ideally, you want to see a financial planner for your individual scenario so you know how to, again, approach something with the best efficiency. If you don't feel like you're in a place to see a fiduciary yet, you can look on Google and, you know, that definitely will give you some knowledge. However, I would recommend being careful while you look. Searching anything related to personal finance just immediately brings in like the MLM crowd and the crowd that like wants to get rich quick. Those schemes do not work. I've actually done like a fair amount of personal finance research for this podcast. I kind of found some good resources to get started if you're like me, where it's like, I really am interested in the idea of saving enough to, you know, retire at a decent age, but I also find a lot of this technical jargon kind of confusing. So good resources to start with are the Balance website. They have a lot of articles where things are summarized in a pretty clear manner on personal finance. There's also the Popcorn Finance podcast, which is the beginning episodes. Again, the whole concept of that podcast is they want to tell you about finance concepts and the amount of time it takes you to cook a bag of popcorn. So it's very very quick and very concise and very clear. There's Investopedia, which is great for Googling terms. So you're like, I still don't really understand a 401k or There's two different types of 401ks. There's a regular 401k and a Roth 401k. You're like, I don't know what the difference is. You can Google it on Investopedia and they'll give you explanations. And the last thing is I actually wrote an article on Medium. That's another resource. And that'll be linked in the show notes if you want to look at it. 
basically I was frustrated because I was trying to find an article that just laid out the basic steps, right, on how to save for retirement, especially when you're like a younger person. And I just wasn't finding something that was like exactly that in a concise manner. And yeah, that's basically it. Just uh, make sure that you consume everything with a grain of salt on the internet. I'm excited now. I'm kind of looking up that podcast and that website. Usually I zone out when hearing anything finance related, but hopefully now I'll at least be able to understand the terms and the most important things I can do for my future investments. So thank you for all that info, Lisa. Yeah, you're welcome. That wraps up our finances episode. Thanks for listening. And until our next discussion, subscribe to our podcast. Also, we love hearing about your experiences as an AAPI person. Submit your story on our website at www.whereimreallyfrom.com.